Tonight, um, we're going to try to cover quite a bit of ground, and we're going to try to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in counselling, a little bit on spiritual discernment, um, and then uh, some on our adversary as well, uh, Satan. So we're going to talk about those things. Uh, let's see. There we go. So we've got a lot to get through. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this, uh, another opportunity to speak your truth and uh, to minister your word. Help us to be completely confident and rest assured that it is your word, that it speaks with power to us, that the Holy Spirit is its author and he applies it to our hearts as uh, residing within us and that our new nature recognizes your truth. Uh, We pray, Father, that what is learned today would be used by you to help your people. Uh, Bless any that are on their way and not yet here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okie dokie. So, um, it's been a few weeks because we had uh, a little break. And if you remember, we were talking last time uh, about... Um, the spiritual life, dealing with Richard Baxter's material. And I hope that some of that was helpful for you. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit, a little bit on spiritual discernment, and then on Satan and his wiles. Um, I wish I could do more on each of these subjects, but we're just going to see what, what we can get done Tonight, if you will turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. If uh, if you haven't noticed, and some of you may not have noticed, but Luke is very interested in the Holy Spirit. And so look, when you're reading the Gospel of Luke or reading Acts, Look for the mention of the Holy Spirit. It's a major theme in his work. And so, here we're dealing with the baptism and temptation of Jesus, and I want to pick a few things out um, of these incidents. The baptism of Jesus is in chapter uh, chapter 3, obviously, of Luke. It's very quickly said, verse 21, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So we have a Trinitarian formulation here, And it is well to dwell on this for a minute because 
all of our ministry is a Trinitarian ministry and all of our counselling will be a Trinitarian counselling. If you just point people to the Father without speaking about Christ, then you are missing, obviously, the one who the Father sent to mediate between him and us. And uh, if you just have the Father and Christ, then and you don't have the Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, as a, a pledge, a down payment. The Holy Spirit is the author of this book that we are using. And uh, the author uh, of this of the scriptures is obviously engaged in the time when his scriptures are being used. So uh, every time that we are engaging in biblical counseling or any kind of, of biblical ministry, it is a Trinitarian ministry. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit are involved and we need to point people to the different works of Father, Son and Holy Spirit in our ministry, okay? Because this, what it does is that it points us to two, uh, two very important things about God. The first is that he's transcendent. He's Lord. Okay, so he's a Lord of all. And as Lord of all, uh, he has the authority to command. As Lord of all, he also is the one who is in control. And this is what lordship means, biblically, uh, when it's applied to God. God is in control of the creation. Uh, God is uh, has the power to change things, as it were. He has the power to change you. He has the power to change circumstances. He has the power, often depending on your response to what he's already said, uh, to change your, for, your fortunes or your outlook in your present situation. So he's a transcendent Lord, but uh, not only is he transcendent, he's also imminent. And what I mean by, what the Bible means by imminent, is that he's here. So he's not just out there in heaven, as it were, but he also is with us. He is very much God with us. And God being with us is very, very important to remember when we are discipling ourselves or others, uh, speaking to ourselves the truths of God, that God, though we can't see him, he seems to be very distant sometimes. He is not distant. He's as close as we are to ourselves. And uh, that is a truth that we must never break away from. When we talk about Satan soon, we will see that that's one of the things he likes to persuade us is true, that God doesn't see or God doesn't care or is too far away to bother. Uh, none of those matches what the Bible says about God. So, it's very quick, isn't it? I mean, Jesus comes, everyone's been baptised, he's baptised. But something strange happens when he's baptised, and that is that the heaven is opened, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. This is his anointing. This is the moment he becomes Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God. Okay, His anointing has to do with his mission as a human being to die for our sins, well, obviously to teach as a Messiah and as a prophet, to die for our sins 
and uh, what follows from that. So this is a work, therefore, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not just go to where John the Baptist was baptizing in uh, at the Jordan and get himself baptized independently of the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was involved in making him what he needed to be for us. Is that um, Christianese too much? Or you understand what I'm saying there? The Holy Spirit was absolutely and centrally involved in what in making Jesus what Jesus needed to be for us. In other words, Jesus had to be a man of the Spirit. He had to be a person who relied on the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Holy Spirit, uh, who trusted in the Holy Spirit, who got his strength from the Holy Spirit. Yes, he is God, second person of the Trinity, but he did not call upon his own uh, powers as deity in order to fulfill his mission on earth. The only time really that we can say that well, maybe there's two times, but but the clear clearest exposition of it is uh, in Matthew 17 at the Transfiguration. At the Transfiguration, just for a very brief period, uh, his clothes shone like lightning, and his face became as bright or brighter than the sun, and that was Jesus revealing who he really is as divine. Okay, that's his divine prerogatives coming through, his, uh, his power as God. The other time is possibly when, at the time of his arrest, um, they, he asked, who do you seek? And uh, the soldiers said, Jesus, he says, it is I, and they fell backwards. That's possibly his power too, because of the I am message that, that is involved there. Um, can go backward and forwards on that one, but every other time, he did not rely on his own divinity. He relied on the Holy Spirit. Now that is important for us. It's important for us because he could not be uh, somebody who we could have as an example if he just tapped into his divine power any time he needed to get himself out of a scrape. Do you see? He didn't do that. He relied on the Holy Spirit. And we see it really clearly here because, you know, he was really hungry here. But he waited until it was the right time for um, God to provide him sustenance. He waited to be baptized um, by John. And he also waited upon the Holy Spirit when it came to meeting his arch enemy. Let's have a look at chapter 4 here in Luke. Then Jesus, this is after his baptism, filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark has a stronger verb there. Mark actually says he was thrust into 
the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. So what's he doing? He's, he's a man who is relying on the leading of the Spirit. Do you see that? This is how we are to rely. Now certainly we're not given this kind of ministry, but still, just as he waited on the Holy Spirit and waited to be empowered by the Spirit, we must also do the same. He's being tempted by Satan for 40 days. He needs the Holy Spirit. And you have the temptation, and we'll get to that temptation, uh, Lord willing, later on. But after the temptation um, is over, then we see verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Do you see that? And news of him went out through all the surrounding regions. And he's teaching in their synagogues. So he's at Nazareth in verse 16. He's handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He reads from the book. What are the first words that he reads? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Jesus is a man of the Spirit. Yes, we're told that the Spirit is not given to him, uh, or is given to him without measure. Uh, yet, he can be an example to, her, to us as how we can rely on God and how we can trust God and how God can provide for us and how God is with us every day of our lives because that's how Jesus lived. He said that uh, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Well, but if the Spirit provided a place for him to lay his head, as sometimes happened, then he would take opportunities. But if he didn't, he still trusted in God. He trusted that he would get a decent night's sleep, you see. Um, he was tempted and yet was able to overcome that temptation by relying on the Holy Spirit. Um, when we're dealing with people in a counselling situation, it is important that we ourselves rely upon the Spirit of God, that we're not relying upon ourselves. I know a lot of theology. I know a decent amount of the Bible, okay? But, and sometimes I rely on that, okay? Shouldn't really admit to that, but, well, I should admit to it, but uh, my flesh doesn't want to admit to it. But, but I sometimes rely on that. But I don't want to rely on that. I want to rely on God. And I particularly want to rely on the Holy Spirit um, in my ministry. And when I'm counseling somebody, because when I'm counseling somebody, it's a spiritual exercise. It's, it's not like psychology, where you, you're trying to diagnose some mechanical issue that's wrong with them. And even... Christian psychology is still trying to do that, okay? Because you're using psychological tools which are only meant to be used to evaluate the machinery, not the spirit. You have to use the spiritual tools, which is the scripture, and your uh, reliance upon the spirit of God in order for you to, um, to counsel in a spiritual way. So that means that that you and I, we need to make sure that we 
call upon the Holy Spirit to help us. That we, when we pray at the beginning of uh, the counseling session or just impromptu when we're facing somebody and we shoot up a little Nehemiah prayer, that we, we call down the Holy Spirit as it were to help us and that we trust that he's going to help us and we rely upon him. Not in any kind of weird and wacky charismatic sense, but just in a, in a biblical sense that he resides within us, that it's his word and that he is interested in helping. And we need to depend on him. So that openness to do that is most important. Also, of course, what the Holy Spirit can do for us is that the Holy Spirit can unlock the other person. The Holy Spirit can maybe uh, help the other person, the counsellee, to say some things or to um, betray some things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And of course he can help us to pick up on those signs and signals as well, can't he? And, of course, then he can call scriptures to mind. He can help our, quote-unquote, common sense in evaluating and dealing with a person. He can give us patience to, instead of jumping into the fray, listen more. Help us to be uh, more in touch with uh, certain things that are being said. And he can call things to remembrance that we have learned in our Christian lives. So, yes, we need to be like Jesus and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn now to Galatians, of course, chapter 5. Galatians tells us in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now, to walk here is to conduct your life. In other words, as we, um, as we go about our daily business, we are to go about that business in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're to have a spiritual, well, we're to call upon a spiritual mind. And I'm going to Romans in a minute to, to kind of describe what that means. But, we are to, to, again, depend on the Spirit, not ourselves. Because when we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, because the lust of the flesh is always there. We have never conquered sin as a Christian. Never. And I, I tried to bring that out from Baxter last time. When you think that you are beating sin, that's when sin is most dangerous. That's when it's most likely to deceive you. So, we must always make sure that we're not using uh, the Spirit of God like a gas pump. Okay? Okay? We, f- we feel that our natural energies and our brain power and our experiences uh, are just kind of uh, they're ebbing out a little bit and so we need to stop off at the Holy Spirit gas station in order to top up the gas tank a little bit with, you know, help from the Spirit of God. Sometimes we live our lives like that. But we're not to do that. We're, we're meant to be 
people who, to put it Paul's way in Romans 14, I think, we yield to the Spirit of God. Yield. We give place to the Spirit. So after saying walk in a spirit, he says in verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. Lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. So you can either choose to walk in the spirit or you can choose to walk in the flesh. To walk in the flesh is to walk how? What's that? There we go. Very good. Two points to Cindy. Independent. Pendent. Yeah, okay. Independently. That's what walking in the flesh is. So reliance or dependence is something that we choose. But you can't choose both. You have to choose one side or the other. You have to choose you, or you have to choose God. Yes? Yes, um, that's true, and we can... Uh, we might be able to get round to some of that. So, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And there's a good reason for that, because the Holy Spirit doesn't need the law to tell him what to do. So if you're depending on the Holy Spirit, neither do you. Do you see? You don't need the law to tell you what to do, because the Holy Spirit is guiding you. You're walking in the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit, then clearly the things of the law that the flesh finds so difficult, you know, putting God first, praying, loving others, uh, not lying or deceiving, and all of the rest of it, not coveting, okay? Those things fall into place. Those are universal and eternal things. They, they reflect the character of God. So they don't become laws anymore, they become part and parcel of your character for as long as you're walking with the Spirit. Do you see that? I mean, imperfectly, yes. But an imperfect sinner who is relying on the Holy Spirit is fulfilling the law of God. Okay? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is washing away their sin, they're walking in the light. So, he says in verse 19, just in case we don't understand what our flesh is like, the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, you can see them. Which are adultery. And you may have some, uh, you know, slightly different, um, a slightly different list. You may not have adultery in your translation, but New King James has adultery in there. And that certainly is one of the results of walking in the flesh. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. So he's talking about uh, here kind of uh, sexual propensities here. And these were all around the ancient world. Idolatry, sorcery. Uh, Sorcery here like uh, 
you know, relying upon um, the uh, you know different soothsayers in the ancient world. They're all kind of, or, or uh, uh, using hexes against people. They have found all over the uh, ancient world, particularly in um, ancient modern day Turkey, so ancient Asia, they have found in Ephesus and uh, Colossae and uh, these ancient cities uh, different uh, magical papyri. And these papyri are... are, um, uh, and amulets and things like this have names of God written on them and uh, what the people did is that they they collected these names of, of the different gods in order to get influence and power over the gods for uh, aiding themselves usually over somebody they didn't like and they would quote the names of these gods and, and call upon them to help them to get one over on somebody else okay you actually find something close to that in the book of Acts, you know, with the sons of Shiva. They're, they say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Okay? They're doing that kind of thing. I know, and the demon replies, you know, well, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who on earth are you? Um, didn't expect that response. But sorcery. Uh, also, the use of... Uh, of uh, uh, Drugs or things to make you high or make you go into um, hallucinations and so on. That's what it's talking about there. Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Heresies. Look at that list in verse 20. You, you know, if you, if you think you're kind of pretty clean on the old, uh, um, sexual, um, Stuff, as it were, you know, the lust and all of that. So verse 19, you kind of bypass, and you think you're okay on the idolatry stuff, and you can't really see yourself in the sorcery category. Then all of a sudden we come across these. Hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of, of anger, selfish ambition. That gets a lot of Christians. Dissensions. Uh, you, dis- you dissent from somebody because you can't, often you, you, you're proud. Or you're not under authority. Or you're putting yourself first and not listening to the other person. Then heresies. Um, heresies, that's an interesting one because sometimes we think that a person who, um, who is involved in uh, an occult or in a heretical teaching, that they can be sincerely wrong. In a sense, you can be sincerely wrong, but you are also sincerely in the flesh. Okay? Heresy, false teaching, does not come from the Spirit of God. It comes from the flesh. So, it comes from not relying on God, not relying on the Scriptures. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. You can make your own list. That's just an example there. 
for you. It's a sin list, but you can add to it, you see. And so we can, we can make our own list. What are some of the things you struggle from? Or let me let not just put you under the microscope that way. What are some of the generic things that Christians deal with? Okay, well, let's put some of those on the board. Pride. Pride, that's a good one. Okay, now she's not saying that of herself. I want everyone to know. Okay, that's just, she's just starting the ball rolling. Okay, what else? Oh, come on. What's that? Yeah, but that's that's there. Think of some others. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want more sins. What are some of the sins that, that you have seen in yourself or some of the sins that you've, you've encountered? Yeah, impatience, yes. Another one? Come on. That's a very good one. You're critical. Yes. You have a critical spirit. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go for addictions. Um, it's not a bad one. That's a very good one. Okay. Uh, you, we can put bitterness here too, yeah. That's very good, yes. Prejudice. Now, what do you mean by prejudice? It is one, yes. Before you know them. Okay. So prejudice, yes. And let's stick one more in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. And I know that all of you have just picked these out because you've seen them in other people. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, these are the things that if we rely on ourselves, these are the things that are going to come out. But you see, here's the problem with, with this. Our default setting is independence. And our hearts are deceitful. So put those two things together. Okay? We have a default setting, an automatic uh, bias to do our own thing and we have a heart that lies to us terribly all the time. So the combination is that we're going to always tell ourselves, okay, we're always going to tell ourselves that walking in the flesh, and we wouldn't call it that, would we? But being independent is okay because actually, you know, we're pretty good people. Okay, so these are things that occasionally come out. Alright? 
But this is not really us. You know, the real us, we're kind of a, a nice, balanced, uh, nice guy. So if we're that way, then obviously, then that that's okay in the world, isn't it? I mean, so it's okay to be like that. What do we need the Holy Spirit for? We're already pretty good. We only need the Holy Spirit when we're, you know, we're getting messed up in a little bit of this. You see, that is not a biblical approach to ourselves. It's most important that we understand that the reasons that these things happen is because of our own sin. In Mark uh, chapter 7, Jesus has his own little sin list. And he says this. Verse four, we'll go from verse 14. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, do you have ears to hear? You see? Or are you going to walk in independence? And uh, so he's asked about this. In verse 18 he says, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men. You see, there's the problem. The centre of... of our evil thoughts, the centre of our independence is our own heart. Proceed. Evil thoughts. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. There's a lot to that text. It's a very profound text because notice what he's saying is that even though these things come out of you from within, that once they're out, they defile you. Did you, did you notice that? Once they're out, they defile you. What does that tell you? Well, now it is. That's good. Kind of, you're reaching for something there, Joyce, that's good. But what it tells you is that if you let the heart loose, if you don't control it, okay, it's, it's like a poison. It, it will influence your whole person. You allow yourself to have covetous thoughts and that for them to proceed from out of your heart. You will become a very covetous person. You allow bitterness to do that. You allow, um, you know, any kind of lust to do that, avarice to do that, you will become that kind of a person. Do you see? Bad language, filthy language. You will become a cuss. Do you see? It defiles you. That is why we must put restraints on our behavior. We have to work on our character and on our wills. 
So looking at some of these here, we're going to come to pride, Lord willing, next week. Um, but pride, this is the thing that lifted the devil up. This is the thing that, that uh, made the devil want to ascend above the high rank that he already had. It wasn't enough. Pride will always have you wanting to aim higher. Never content, never satisfied. In order for pride to vindicate itself, pride will always uh, tell you what it needs you to hear in order for you to um, justify your thinking or justify your language, or justify your way, the way you're treating that person. Justify the, uh, your value system. Okay? Pride is, is putting yourself first. Pride is, is dealing with you and, and, and in, in interpreting everything around you. That's why there are things that are offshoots of pride uh, which are extremely damaging. You know, perfectionism, for example. Perfectionism, that's pride. Why? Well, if you're, uh, if you're living on your own, you can have your apartment any way that you want. Okay? So, if you're, like, if you're an Adrian monk and you want to have everything that you, you know, completely perfect around there, I guess you can be like that. It's not the healthiest way of dealing with yourself, okay, because that's going to be carried outside. But what about if you're married? What about if you've got kids? What about if you've got friends in or you're trying to make friends and you're perfectionistic? Okay, then isn't there going to be a danger of you wanting to impose what you want on everyone around you? But where did that come from? Why does everything have to be perfect? Because you're perfect? Because God thinks anything about that at all? Because that's more important than relationships? Do you think Jesus, when he went into somebody's homes, refused to go in unless everything was completely tidied up and the floors were dusted and everything was absolutely perfect? Do you think that was the way it was? Absolutely not. Not at all. In fact, his remarks here in Mark 7 show you that he didn't feel too much. He wasn't really concerned about the outside of the bowl. So we need to be careful about that. If you find that you have a perfectionistic spirit, it's because you're proud. That's where pride has you. So that's the part of pride that you need to work on. But it is about you. Don't, don't fool yourself. Okay, If you want to do an excellent job, you can do an excellent job. Okay? And that's fine. But don't take that into your relationships. Alright? It can be very, very damaging. And it comes from putting yourself at the centre. Pride is uh, clearly, uh, can manifest itself in being a stuffed shirt. Okay, from 
taking a highbrow, highbrow approach to people. So I've, I've seen this. You've seen this. You see it, unfortunately, a lot uh, when you um, hang around. Uh, <laughs> you see it a lot in pastors. Okay, not it, it, there's a there's there's the pastors who are humble servants of God. Okay, and they're just the great the greatest guys in the world. Okay, and then there's these pastors who must be heard. Okay, they must be the center of the of attention. They they always have something to say. Um, they always want to impress you with their reading, or they always want to impress you with uh, what they've done, what they've built, how God's used them, and so on. And, um, you know, it's just pride. The ministry is a great place for a proud person. I mean, look, I'm up here, you're not. That gives me a sense of power, doesn't it, if I'm the wrong kind of a person. Do you see? Um, I think the most uh, people I've spoken to, I can't remember, something, a couple of thousand people, okay, that I've spoken to. So, here's you, everyone's listening to you. And it can, if, it, if you're not careful, it can make you feel like not only are you physically standing above them, but you must be above them. Alright, because after all, you're the guy and they're listening to you. You've got to be careful. Of that, because you're nothing. Um, I'd rather you didn't, but yeah, in a in a few minutes maybe. So, watch out for pride. Also, watch out for pride when it comes to self pity. Oh, woe is me! Okay, I'm no good at that. Oh, I can't do that. I'm just I, you know, I I'm always mess up. I'm just I'm just no good at anything. Um, I couldn't possibly do that. Or, you know, even the, the, the more sanctimonious stuff, which is a pretended deference to everybody else. Uh, no, you know, you go first, you know, uh, but making kind of, milking it a little bit too much, yes? It's all pride. It's all from an independent, wicked heart. God hates pride. Okay? He hates pride. Over and over and over again, we are called upon to be humble. So, most important, impatience. Well, can you see how impatience is connected to pride? <laughs> I can. Because <laughs> impatience is all about what? You. Okay, And that you don't want to wait anymore. You've waited long enough. Um, prejudice you know you're never going to treat people fairly and give them a square deal if you judge them according to social class or you judge them according to uh, the amount of money they make or you judge them according to where they are in the company that you happen to work in or you go to you know department store and you um, you see that they've got a lowly job in a department store and so on, you need to make sure that, uh, and I need to make sure, that we don't prejudge a person's character by what they're doing, you know. 
or the way that we find them. Uh, so self-righteousness, we can kind of skip that, but self-righteousness is this, uh, the Pharisaic, Pharisaical spirit. Um, the, the idea that we've achieved something in the spiritual realm and, and kind of we may not have made it yet, but, you know, we are a pretty long way along the road. And so John chapter 9 shows that spirit. For example, the man born blind and uh, the Jews said to him, he said, well, you know, why do you want to know who he is, who healed me? Do you want to follow him also? And what do they do? They attack him. And, um, you know, they, they pump themselves up as being people who follow the law and follow Moses. That's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a very, very dangerous thing because self-righteousness is basically telling God we don't need his righteousness. It's telling God that he's a liar because actually our righteousness is pretty impressive. And if God was really paying attention, you know, he would agree with us that we're pretty good people. Critical spirit. Okay, critical spirit. Um, this is a hard one for some people. Um, don't even know where to start on this one, so I'll start, I'll just say a few basic things. But, the, um, evidently the thing that destroys more marriages than anything else is criticism. Usually comes from one area, but it doesn't always come from one area. But, um, ladies, you tend to criticize men a lot. Why? Because you want to be critical? No, not normally. It's normally that you want them to see something or you want to help them see something they don't see. Or you want to improve them or, you, you know, something like that, isn't it? Yeah, you, normally it's, it's, you're not thinking that you're being critical. But in pointing out what he's doing wrong all the time, or, you know, don't do it that way, do it this way. Okay? He's... He's not taking that in the way that you want him to take it. And neither would you if it was done to you all the time. Okay? Now, some men can be very critical of their wives. They can come home. Haven't you cooked the dinner? Yeah? You, you know, well, how come the house is a, is a huge mess? Maybe there's a good reason. But this critical spirit can really, um, you know, grind a relationship down. And the thing is, what does it matter? I mean, in the long run, what does it matter? Can't you enjoy yourself even though things are not exactly the way that you want them? Do you have to stop everything and ruin everything because something wasn't done that you wanted to get done? Is that the way it has to be? No, it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, there may be occasion when you, uh, you know, a, structure, a structured criticism is necessary, but we need to be very careful of having a critical spirit. 
And of course it's not just the ladies, but that is, if you want to know what, if, what is one of the most common um, things that, that husbands say when it comes to marriages that are struggling, it is that they are being criticised. The other one is that they're being disrespected, which is basically two sides of the same coin. Um, unforgiveness and bitterness. Unforgiveness is allowing something to, to dominate you and have power over you and have power over the trajectory of your life that you need to get rid of. Now, um, and, and it can, of course, go over into bitterness really easily. Um, so, somebody has wronged you. Welcome to the world. Okay? I know somebody who was wronged terribly. He was spat at. He was beaten. He was mocked. Why should you be any different? So, um, he forgave people. He, from the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He forgave somebody who, probably an hour earlier, was, was vilifying him from the cross and mocking him. But he, he had that spirit of forgiveness within him to, that as soon as that person saw his plight and saw... Jesus, for who he was, Jesus was ready to forgive him. So, many, many, many things. And I'm just going to be fairly generic here, because let's say probably 90% of things fall under this category that I'm going to talk about. Um, They're small things. I mean, in the scheme of things. They're small things. So, you're... Um, your wife had a headache or had a bad day, so she's gruff and she shouted at you. <coughs> or she was impatient with you. Can you forgive her for that? Can you overlook that? You know, is, a, <laughs> is it so difficult to empathise a little bit and just forgive her and and change your attitude yes that hurt but you know forgiveness is a gift that you can give her isn't it for that um, so he, he's dinged up the car because he you know tried something stupid okay he was a little bit reckless alright so he said look I did this I'm sorry I, I messed up okay can you forgive him for that Especially if he said sorry. In fact, what about this? What about this thing? Because this is huge in counselling. And that is, you know, is the person willing to forgive? And is the other person willing to say sorry? And to ask for forgiveness? What about you? What about me? Are we willing to, when we've messed up, Again, are we willing to say sorry again? Or do we only allow ourselves one apology a week? 
because our pride can't take it or they'll take advantage of it. Do we allow ourselves, because we're generous with ourselves and we're good people, you know, one apology a day. But maybe we've messed up four or five things times in a day. Maybe we've been gruff and ill-tempered. Maybe in, because we've been gruff and ill-tempered, we've uh, slammed the door on the way out. Um, maybe we've uh, forgotten to do something that was important to do. All in one day. And to boot, maybe we've had a rotten day anyway. So surely because we've had a rotten day, say at work, that justifies us in in, uh, being a T-Rex in the house, doesn't it? When we come home. So we don't have to ask for forgiveness because we're justifying to ourselves our little rant. But you see, are we willing to ask for forgiveness? It's important. So many people will not say sorry. Okay? What's wrong with you? Are you proud? Is pride your issue? I think so. I think so. I think you're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. Because if you were walking in the spirit, it wouldn't be difficult for you to ask for forgiveness. And it wouldn't be difficult for somebody who was walking in the spirit to forgive and move on. So, good examples here. These are the works of the flesh. And he says here in verse 21 of Galatians 5, Just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're a person and this is the thing that characterizes your life, what Paul is saying is that these are not the things, these are not the character traits of a born-again Christian. Now, born-again Christians can do all of these things, which is why he's writing to the Galatians about it. But if these things characterize your life, then you need to beware. You need to make sure that you're walking in the Spirit. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But at the same time, you are calling your salvation into question by your lack of sanctification. You see that? So he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. These are great things. It's just that it's a simple list. It's a simple list. So love. Uh, not the world's love, but biblical love is uh, involved in being committed to somebody for their own good. Okay? Being committed to that somebody for, for their own good. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that is the basis of it. You may not feel fluttery feelings for that person at that particular time. But your, your determination to do them good and to have their back and to be committed to them is unwavering because you love them. Okay? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy. Um, 
this is not jumping up and down, you know, making yourself feel happy just by getting your heart pumping. This is a natural joy that comes from yielding place to God in your life. From taking this off and making yourself dependent on God, you will see that in disengaging yourself from yourself (laughs) and connecting yourself to God and relying on him in faith, allowing faith to flourish, automatically you become more heavenly minded. You become more future focused. Uh, the, The complexities and the difficulties of the world start to fall away. Things become more easily seen for what they are. Your priorities change. Your understanding of yourself changes. Your understanding of how to serve others changes. And in that environment, joy can find a place. So that's naturally a fruit of the Spirit. Peace because of the same environment. Uh, So you're facing uh, an obstacle or difficulty at work, for example. And um, it's it's a, maybe they're having layoffs and you're wondering about how you're going to pay your bills. And you're wondering about, you know, what's around the corner for you. Well, you can keep worrying about it and trying to figure it out yourself. You're powerless to do anything about it. I mean, you can go chasing your tail and, and uh, you know, going crazy trying to fix the problem. Or you can give it to God. You can rely upon him. And then you can just do a few things that you can do. Apply here, maybe. You know, see if there's something going on here. But then just... Relax, knowing that God knows. Peace. You get peace. But, and people will say, well, but what about this? You know that this is happening in your life. You got this issue going on. Yeah, but I've given it to God. So God is carrying that burden now. He wants you to carry it. Oh, sorry, He wants to carry it. So let him carry it, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Come unto me, all you that are the labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, come to him then, you see? Long-suffering, there we are. That deals with that one. God is amazingly, astonishingly long-suffering. So yes, um, the Assyrians come in and enslave and, and kill a whole bunch of um, the northern kingdom. And yes, the Babylonians do the same to the southern kingdom 150, 180 years later. And yes, um, God orders uh, the destruction of the Canaanites. But he doesn't do it you know, because yesterday they sinned against him. He does it hundreds of years after warning them. Hundreds of years. 
God is amazingly long-suffering. And, and this is something that, that Satan loves to do, and we'll get on to Satan in a minute. But it's something that Satan loves to do. He likes to tell you that God's going to get you for that. Okay? You better sort that out because God's going to get you for that. And then what that automatically does is it, it, it makes you afraid to go to God until you're, you perfect yourself. Do you see? And that distorts the image of God that you have, or the image that you have of God. Do you see? So that you won't come to him because he's this brooding headmaster with a big stick. Not a long-suffering father who is waiting for the prodigal to come home. Kindness, not niceness. Kindness. Just be kind to people. Kindness means thinking about what you're going to say before you open your mouth. Okay? Uh, choice words are like apples of gold and pitchers of silver, Proverbs says. Choose the right words. Choose edifying words. Be kind. Watch your tone. All of us, me included, we can be kind. And if we foul up because our tone was wrong or our, we used the wrong word, guess what? We get to say sorry and be kind instead. Goodness, just being a, a good person characterized by that which is good. Faithfulness. You've got the person's back. Gentleness or meekness. Okay? In other words, if you're attacked because you're a gentle, you're a meek person, you don't put your fists up automatically. Your hackles don't go up automatically. You're not straight away, you know, on the attack. You're gentle. Self-control. Um... Temperance, you know, that, that you're, you're careful about what you allow in your own life, the limits that you'll go to, the limits that you'll allow your anger to go to. There's a great passage in Ephesians that, that uh, says in Ephesians 4 that um, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. So, yeah, you, you and your husband, you and your son, you or somebody else, okay, have, have had angry words. And right now, maybe, you're feeling annoyed at that person and you're bristling still at that person. You can make a choice and I can make a choice not to continue to be angry. You say, but I am angry. I feel angry. Well, you can make a choice to stop feeling angry. You can. And you ought to. And you ought to never put your head on the pillow if you're angry at somebody. You say, well, I'm waiting for them to say sorry to me because they've 
hurt me. Well, yeah, well, well, wait without being angry. All right? Wait without being angry. Because that shows a person who's yielding to the Spirit. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit, let us, that's a, a kind of a, just a logical way of looking at things. Okay, so, a few things here from John Owen. I'm just going to read a couple of things for you, that's all. Not a lot. There's one thing here that I wanted to quote. Where is it? So Owen says this, He that would utterly separate the spirit from the word had as good burn his Bible. Yeah, I'll read it again. Shall I update it for you as well? He that would utterly separate the spirit from his word or from the word had might as well burn their Bibles. That's from his uh, work on the Holy Spirit, page 192. So, um, in biblical counselling, we have to always understand this is the Spirit's word. This is the Spirit's word, and therefore it's the Spirit's business. When we are dealing with our own sins, when then we're got to make sure that we're dealing with the Holy Spirit. Because there's a way of, of coming to the Bible in our independence. We're not relying on the Spirit. We're not, and ask God to open our eyes to behold marvellous things from his law. We're just coming to the Bible as a religious duty. So we must acknowledge uh, the Spirit's work. <coughs> Um, there's a bunch of stuff here, but I, I, I can't really... I, I, I'll just go through this really quickly, okay? Uh, he here talks about what he calls sinful distempers, sinful issues and problems of our natures that um, are not presently cured at once, but the healing and removing of them is carried on by degrees unto... Oh, well, I'll just put it in my language. Uh, to the end of their course, okay? And are living in this world. And he says that there are three effects of this sinful uh, vanity of the mind that we need to uh, be careful of and work on all the time. The first one is an inst- what he calls an instability in holy duties, such as meditation, prayer, and hearing of the word. An instability in meditation, meditating on the things of God, 
on the providence of God, on the goodness of God, on the gospel. Prayer and hearing the word of God. So if you're the kind of person that you're, you've got a spotty um, history in any of these three, that's something that you have to make sure that you're working on. Okay, And guess what? Good news, you're going to be working on it until the day you die. Because this is not done just automatically by people. Why not? Why isn't this done automatically? Yes, thank you. Because of this, that's right. Because all of these are kind of fruits of dependence upon God. Do you see? He says this, how difficult is it to keep... Uh, up an even fixed stable frame of acting spiritually in spiritual things oh sure it is how is it ready at every breath to unbend and let down its um, its power all we experience or complain of in this kind is from the uncured relics of this instability so second thing This is that which inclines and leads men towards a conformity with and to a vain world in its customs, habits and ordinary conversation which are all vain and foolish. So he says that one of the things that we are always inclined to is to conform ourselves to the world. What do you have to do according to Romans chapter 12? Turn to Romans 12. Tell me what do you have to do in order to stop this inclination? Yeah, read it out for us, Robert. I mean, you're right. Somebody read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 out for us. Okay, so please understand that he is saying this is something that must be done continually, not just once, continually. So continually we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Continually we are to watch out that our minds are not conformed to this world, but transformed. Continually. Because Owen says that the inclination is always going to be to, conf- to let the world conform our thinking. Okay? And it's helped so much by this and by our own hearts that wants to be conformed to the world. And then uh, the third thing, he says uh, that this acts itself in fond and foolish imaginations 
whereby it secretly makes provision for the flesh and its lusts. For they all generally lead to self-exaltation and satisfaction. And these, if not carefully checked, will proceed to such an excess as greatly to taint the whole soul. Now what he's saying here is that um, we we get puffed up in our imaginations. That we like to put ourselves into scenarios and like to see ourselves in certain scenarios and because we're not in that scenario, then our heart and our imagination goes to work in order to try to achieve that goal. Sometimes if, if it's way beyond us, then we will we'll bring things in, ways of thinking or, or things that we watch or things that we read or the ways that we dress or whatever that, to substitute that. But in either way, it starts with us entertaining what he calls fond and foolish imaginations because when you do that, you make provision for those imaginings in your flesh, in your fleshly nature. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't allow you to do that. The Holy Spirit says, be content with such things as you have. But if you are imagining yourself as something more, something better, then automatically a door is opened for the flesh, do you see? And the lust of the flesh. And that leads, as he says here, to self-exaltation. So these are things that we are always going to be working on as Christians. All right, any questions on this? Yes. Well, your dad is—is uh, is this your dad? No. This is somebody. Somebody who has chosen. Somebody who is a perfectionist has chosen to live with somebody who's a hoarder. A hoarder. You know like yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, they've made that choice. Yeah. If they make that choice, then they can't be. They can't allow their perfectionism to come in. Otherwise, they need to. You know, they should never have made that choice. So in making the choice, they have to give up their perfectionism. Well, no, obviously they need help in that situation, but, but, but that person's duty is not to try and change the other person. It's to try to be the right person in that situation. Okay? Well, I'm not sure what you're asking. I'm not sure what you're asking me.
affected my life as you know interfering with that, let's say. Okay. So maybe their their interfering is like really fat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean they're maybe an alcoholic mm-hmm. or maybe they're mm-hmm. driving a car and you know, get dented, you can't afford to fix it and Okay. So what do you do? You just don't care about anything? You just let it be? No, I didn't say that. No, I'm just asking how a person would... Well, because... Well, look. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's The problem is how you ask the question. You ask the question, somebody who's a perfectionist dealing with somebody who is a hoarder. Okay? Okay? If you'd have asked the question how to deal with a hoarder, whether you're a perfectionist or whether somebody is a perfectionist or not, that's a different question. But somebody, if you're asking a question, somebody who's a perfectionist dealing with it, I'm going to, first of all, deal with the person who's a perfectionist because they shouldn't be a perfectionist. And they've chosen, in one way or another, okay, to be that way, and they can uh, make a choice, it's going to be difficult, but create the right habits and it won't be as difficult, um, not to be that way, and that will automatically help their disposition towards the person who's a hoarder. Now, then they can ask the question, how do we deal with the hoarder? Do you see? Which is a different question. Yeah. Yeah. It's rather like this. It's rather like... Um, so, so it, it's quite common. It's not... doesn't happen all the time, but it's quite common to get a couple in who want to be counselled and one of them or both of them want you to fix the other person. Okay? But that's completely the wrong attitude. That's not biblical. And you, that's one of the things you're going to point out to them. Okay, the Bible says that uh, we're not here to fix the other person as far as you're concerned. We're here to fix you too. So are you interested in fixing yourself and your attitudes and looking at yourself, okay, and we'll allow the God to deal with that person just as well, just as we'll allow God to deal with you. How's about that? Do you see? And some people go for it and they make progress when they go for it and some people won't. But that's just the way that it is. All right. So, uh, we're running a bit late. Can I go a bit more or do you want to go? Particularly you guys. Do you want to wrap it up here? Okay. Uh, let's, let's look here at um, spiritual discernment just a little bit, okay? Um, so, go with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5 <clears throat> and verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Okay, keep your thumb in there and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. Verse one. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now, You're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And the example he gives in verse 4 is this party spirit. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and so on. Isn't that proof that you're carnal then? You're following this leader, you're following this celebrity. It's an example of carnality. Um, so keep your thumb in that one and with your third hand go to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 when I was a child I spoke as a child I understood as a child I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, says, I can't speak to you like I want to speak to you, because you can't take it. You wouldn't be able to comprehend it. You're not ready for it, because you're carnally minded. In other words, uh, your mind's have not been prepared by you, by yourselves, by the the reading, the studying, the preaching, you know, by the spiritual disciplines. Uh, Your minds and your hearts have not been readied for this kind of truth. So I can't teach you the the way I want to teach you. You're not ready for it because you're like babes. I can only feed you with milk because that's all babies can take. Okay? Now, obviously, that's not what um, that's not what adults want to live on. I mean, young babies, young babies, you can give them milk, and that's good for them, okay? And that's what they want. But grown-ups, in fact, even toddlers, you can't just give toddlers milk. You can't give a five-year-old just milk. You can't give a 15-year-old milk, okay? And a grown-up, you can't just live on milk. But so many Christians are satisfied with, you know, just just like they were feeding on baby bottles. They're okay with it. Why? What does Paul say? Why? Because their minds are carnal. Now, what he means by that, and there is some dispute here, but I think the, the text is actually very clear. It's not difficult, it's just certain theologies get in the way here. But the text is quite simple. He doesn't say they're naturally minded. 
He says they're carnally minded. It means that they're thinking in a worldly way. And because they're thinking in a worldly way, they're not, they can't receive the truths that a spiritual mind can receive. Because only a spiritual mind has the ears to hear what Paul has for them. Do you see? This, again, it's, it has to do with the inclination, doesn't it? The, in everything, are you willing? <laughs> are you willing to do what's necessary in order to change the character, change the inclination, and so on? So that's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, I link it to what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, because obviously... Paul, uh, sorry, God wants us to move beyond that. It's not a good thing for a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, okay, to still want milk. In fact, that really is a travesty. Um, can I, can I just confess one thing to you here? Makes me feel better when I just say this. Uh, it's not a sin. I, I have actually um, have no problem with saying this, but I know it, it does me good when I say this. And that is this stuff about putting the cookies on the lo- lower shelf. For many people, it means feed me milk because I'm not willing to think. I'll think about my job. I'll think about my college. I'll think about everything else. I'll think about my medications. I'll think about anything out there in the world, but you give me stuff that I can just grab like that because I can't be bothered in the spiritual realm. That's what that means most of the time. And folks, yes, you don't intellectualize things, okay? You don't try to communicate in a highbrow and overly, you know, fatuous way to people. But good gracious me, you people ought to be able to understand this book. I mean, to a great degree. They ought to not need the cookies on the lowest shelf. Guess who needs the cookies on the lowest shelf? The kids. Not the grown-ups. The grown-ups don't need the cookies on the lowest shelf. They they don't want them up here either, okay? But they want them at a height that is comfortable for them, okay? Okay? And if it's, they're only comfortable by reaching down to the lowest shelf, there's something wrong with their spiritual lives. And they will never, ever, ever grow if they have their way. Okay, that's, that's baby thinking. So, in Hebrews chapter 5, Paul is getting after the, oh, sorry, it's not Paul, um, the, the writer of the Hebrews is getting after these people and he says, look, you ought to be teachers. This is what you ought to be. But you're not. <laughs> you still need someone to teach you. What? The very first principles. 
because you haven't got them down. Now, it's not, what, it's not that he's saying that we get past all of this stuff. The first principles are always important, but the first principles become more and more profound the more we look at them as we grow. Isn't that true? Okay? They become more and more foundational, more and more important to us. Um, there's so much to them. But we don't, we also want to build, we want to go beyond them too. And he says that you're not ready. You have need of milk, not solid food. Well, he's talking to adults. Adults actually should need solid food, so there's something wrong going on here. Um, one of the, one of the issues that, that biblical counselors face is the biblical illiteracy of many people, many Christians that come to see them. So one of the things that a biblical counselor has to do is actually try and teach them some basic Bible doctrine. You say, why does there have to be Bible doctrine? Well, look at what the writer says here. He says, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. The word of righteousness, the first principles, teachers, this has to do with doctrine. Do you see that? It has to do with doctrine. So there must be a willingness to accept the truths of Scripture and understand how they go together and understand how they are to dominate our perspectives and our outlooks and our values and so on. That's, this is the materials that we use to grow, to feed ourselves with. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both of good and evil. Use of what? Use of the word. Application of the word to their lives. Application of the knowledge of the word. 200 years ago, 300 years ago, um, people, say in, in England and Scotland, they would have big volumes of theology on their shelves. Farmers, cottagers, factory workers. Now, there's a lot of pastors that don't even have those volumes on their shelves unless they're, you know, holding something up. How can we be in the business of spiritual discernment if we're not interested in God's word, we're not interested in God's truth. It's not possible and we will fall for every wind of doctrine that's out there. Every new fad. Okay? Every um, guy that's out there who wants to make a fast buck off of us, either because he's got a new jet that he wants to buy or um, he wants to impress us about his knowledge of uh, some tree growing in New York or the blood moons or whatever. We need to be people who are, you know, fully, um, uh, thoroughly uh, 
What's the word? <laughs> Matured, yes, yes. In the word of God. Uh, but he says here, by use of this, of the word, by use of thinking in a biblical way, your senses, you see, your senses are exercised. If you're going to have spiritual discernment, you need to employ the spiritual, the word of God spiritually, and, and you will look upon the world, you'll look upon people, you'll read people in a sense a biblical way instead of a worldly way. And looking at people in a biblical way, patiently, kindly, and so on, but listening carefully, analysing, knowing that the heart is deceptive this way, you will find out much more about them. You'll be able to discern good and evil because good often can uh, look, or rather evil, can look the same as good. It wears truth's clothes very often, doesn't it? So, discernment is very important. You cannot get discernment um, man, there's this, this I don't know whether it's the flesh or not I don't think it's the flesh I just want to say you can't get the get discernment by reading the paraphrased Bible of your choice and you can't get discernment by reading most of the top 50 authors at CBD yes? And most of the conference, the famous conference speakers, okay? You won't get discernment that way because they won't feed you. They feed you milk. And you can fill in the gaps and so on, yes? That's the sentences for them, okay? You won't grow that way. Okay? You have to engage the mind, okay? You have to think. Some people don't like thinking. You can encourage them. I mean, I'm not saying get after them and scold them, but I am saying encourage them. Yes, you can. God's given you this uh, this wonderful thing called a brain that you use all the time. Um, so I've got this. Um, it's, it's clearing up now, but I've had this uh, this stuff like an eczema thing going on on my arms. Okay. So, I've had three different medications to put on this. And the most recent one's working. I couldn't tell you what the name of any of them are. Triacetylone, or whatever, I don't know. Sounds a a little bit like an Italian spaghetti thing. But, I don't know. But, you know, there are some people... They can tell you every single, the name of every single medication and so on. They can, uh, you know, they've got details of, of um, all of the uh, sports figures and how the Warriors did and how the Mets did and, and all of this stuff. They can, they can tell you all of this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with knowing that stuff. But they can't tell you anything about the Bible. I mean, they're Christians. But they're not using their minds in a spiritual way. Paul says, are you not babes? Are you not carnal? The answer is, yes. And that's why you can't discern. And that's why the devil takes you in. And we don't have time to do the devil 
tonight. We'll have to do him next week. But that is a good place to, to close tonight. People are taken in by the devil very often, okay, because they just are not living by the word of God.